This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode number 16, recorded on October 3rd, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Lars Wagner. Thanks, Lars, for being here. Great to be here, Tim. And today we have a special guest with us from the University of Utah, Dr. Stephen Lesnick. Welcome, Stephen. Great. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. We happen to uh, cajole you into doing this on your way through town, so we appreciate your willingness to join us. Dr. Lesnick is a professor at the University of Utah in the Department of Pediatrics, and he holds a number of other titles as well. He is the John and Karen Hutzman Presidential Professor in Cancer Research in Salt Lake City. Come on in, Lionel. Lionel Chow, our another co-host, just joined us. Welcome, Lionel. Thanks for coming in. Thanks a lot. Dr. Leslick is also the director of the Center for Children's Cancer Research, the C-cubed-R, as he calls it, uh, at the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City. And he is also a member of a number of different national committees, many through the Children's Oncology Group, most involving uh, bone sarcomas, uh, and is an expert in Ewing sarcoma. So the topic we thought we'd talk about today is Ewing sarcoma, particularly his some of his research findings in the genetics of Ewing sarcoma. And Steve, I was wondering if we could just go back a little bit to uh, how you got to where you are today. Can you just tell us where you trained and what, who some of your mentors were along the way? Yeah, so, um, you know, my first research experience was really as an undergraduate at Brandeis with a guy named Jerry Fassman, who might be considered one of the earliest bioinformatics experts around because they used to take proteins and figure out which amino acids like to be in alpha helices and which amino acids like to be in other structures. And while I was in his lab, um, I read a book that had just come out called Natural Obsessions. It was um, I've read that book, yeah. an amazing, Mary amazing Andrew. book about, about the Weinberg lab and, you know, really around the time of, of the giants, you know, around the time of cloning of the retinoblastoma gene and some of the work they were doing in RAS and, and other things. And that really whetted my interest to, to do cancer research. I'd always thought I'd go to medical school, but... Um, that opened my eyes to the possibility of maybe combining a career in medicine and in, in research. And so from there, I uh, eventually went to UCLA where I did the, an MD-PhD program. And during the PhD years, uh, I worked with, you know, probably my, one of my favorite mentors of all time, Chris Denny, who was um, one of the two labs initially to have cloned EWS fly. And Chris was a pediatric, or still is, excuse me, a pediatric oncologist completely enthusiastic, funniest guy in the universe, and was just infectious, you know, and the time in his lab was right after EWS fly had been cloned, so we knew almost nothing about the protein, and it was just um, wildly exciting to figure out the initial characterization of what that protein did, and it turned out to be, you know, the critical protein that, that allows you and sarcoma to develop, and that really set me up for the rest of my adult research career. Yeah, Chris is well-known in the field, obviously, and he's um, done a lot of great work. It's good that you were landed where you could get a real jumping start. Yeah, and I, I should say, and after that, I went to went to Boston and, and had the fortune, um, 
of working with Todd Golub, who is, again, one of the pioneers in bioinformatics. And the, the issue that we had in Chris Denny's lab early on was that we knew EWS fly was going to turn some genes on and probably some genes off. We didn't really know which ones. But there wasn't a technology available at the time to figure out what genes were, were being turned on and which ones were being turned off. When I went to Todd Golub's lab afterwards, that was just as this new technology became available, which was microarray technology. And I didn't really intend to work on Ewing's sarcoma again. In fact, I had a, a much bigger project looking at multiple different pediatric cancers. But as we started gathering the data, I realized that this Ewing's problem was still a huge problem. It was a tough nut to crack and that there was an opportunity with this new technology to really start opening things up. And so it was, you know, being in Todd Golub's lab that, that allowed us to build the foundations for what we now do today. So in his lab, were you working on Ewing's or just working on the techniques that you would use later in Ewing's? So I, I eventually came around to working in Ewing's again. That was not my very first project, but I eventually came back to working on Ewing's again. And, and it had a lot to do with, um, you know, which pieces of that initial project looked like they were working, which ones weren't. And the microarray technology was improving at that point. You know, every six months or every year, there was a, a significant improvement in the technology. And around that same time was the, the other new technology that had become available, which was RNA interference or RNAi, which is the ability to, to um, reduce the expression of any gene of interest. And so with those two pieces in hand, that was really all the foundation that we needed to uh, to have in place to be able to study this problem. Interestingly, our, our most recent episode, episode 15, was all about Dicer-1 syndrome mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, downregulation of RNAi. So if, review, if listeners want to go listen to that one, it's related to what you just talked about. You know, the, the field of uh, studying leukemias and translocations and uh, microarray analyses, genetic analyses, has sort of been always somewhat way ahead of the field in solid tumors, probably because you can get leukemias easily out of blood draws and get pure populations of, of lymphoblasts as opposed to a solid tumor. It's harder to access and, um, you know, has mixed cell types in there. So can you speak to a little bit of the challenges of solid tumors versus leukemia studies? Yeah, absolutely. So to study a disease like Ewing sarcoma, um, the vast majority of patients, not all, but the vast majority of patients' tumors are biopsied with some sort of a needle, you know, usually what we call a core biopsy. So the amount of tissue that we get back is, is really incredibly small, usually enough to make the diagnosis, thankfully, but there isn't a whole lot more to, to store away in a tumor bank, for example. So you mentioned some of the, some of the jobs that I have, and one of the jobs that I have in children's oncology group is to help to run the tumor bank for Ewing sarcoma. And one of the struggles that we've had is to have enough tissue in the bank to be able to give out to researchers to do the studies that they need to do. Um, you mentioned the idea of the microarray profiles for leukemia versus those for solid tumors. You'll notice that the big microarray studies for Ewing sarcoma has still not been published. It's been done for a while and the data is difficult to interpret. And it's a little unclear whether that difficulty is because of the issue that you raise, which is some tumors have a lot of tumor cells and very little blood and connective tissue, while other tumors maybe have a lot of blood and connective tissue, but very little tumor in those samples. 
and and we're, we've been working our way to, to understand how to sort through those sorts of issues to be able to um, get those big pro, uh, those big profiles published so other researchers can use them. This is all work that's being done by a, a good friend of mine, Beth Lawler, now in Michigan. She was at Children's LA, and this is you know this has really been a big struggle, and we don't know what to make of it at this point. You talked about the difficulty in uh, banking tumor samples. Um, are, are you in the process of working with uh, our, our surgical colleagues in terms of trying to, uh, at the time of biopsy, to obtain more than just core biopsies? This is an issue. I work primarily with brain tumors, and we have, um, uh, it, it, for tumors of a certain location, mainly the brainstem, we have a very difficult time uh, obtaining samples as well. So this is a major issue in our field. And I'm just wondering how you're approaching that in terms of trying to get more tumor material for, for researchers to study on. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting problem. I would argue that our surgical colleagues are very willing to give us what we need, but there's a big ethical issue. And the ethical yeah. issue is, is it appropriate to subject a patient to a larger surgery? And, and an open biopsy is a larger surgery than putting a needle into a tumor in order simply to get tumor material to stick in a bank or do a biologic study if you can't make a treatment decision with that material. So this, the strategy that we've been thinking a lot about right now in children's oncology group is trying to identify uh, a marker of prognosis that we can use for patient decision making. And right now, the study that we have ongoing is a study looking at mutations of two genes, P53 and P16. There was a, a fair amount of preliminary data to suggest that if you have mutant P53 or mutant P16, you tend to do worse than somebody who has normal wild type P53 or, or P16. That, that's only been done in, in limited institutional studies. And so we're now doing those studies across um, a very large clinical trial that was done in Ewing sarcoma through Children's Oncology Group. The hope here is if this data holds up, this will be a test that we'll be able to offer treating clinicians and be able to decide, as an example, if a patient has a mutant P53, maybe they need more intensive therapy. And maybe if a patient has wild type P53, they can get our current standard therapy. Maybe they will do fine without having uh, more intensive and therefore more toxic therapy. If we get to that point, then we can ask completely ethically and appropriately for tumors to be submitted so we can test them. And this is the this is the overall strategy for moving forward with this. So you know, my understanding of the ethics is that in adults you can ask yeah. for things, right? It, without the prospect of benefit, you can do more than minimal research if they consent. Right. So I think the cutoff there for ethically is eighteen, right? Mm -hmm. So and most of viewing sarcoma patients are adolescents or young adults. So it would seem to me there'd be a large proportion of your patients where you actually could just put that into consent without a, a, you know a, a real clinically relevant reason. Yeah. I mean, it, this this really is a bit of a conundrum to tell you the, the perfect truth. And, and the issue is, is that the patients who end up on children's oncology group studies tend to be the patients who walk through ch the door at a children's hospital, and depending on the children's hospital, are 18 or less or 21 or less, depending on, on the particular institution's um, rules. You know, ultimately... Um, I would argue that it's not unreasonable to ask 
uh, patients and their families at baseline for an open biopsy provided there is good rationale towards advancing the field. I mean, to be perfectly fair, we do clinical trials based on the assumption that we're improving clinical outcome based on our trials. You know, there's some data for that. Sometimes there's not great data, although it's certainly reasonable and not it's not off the wall in any way, shape, or form. You know, an open biopsy is not a huge surgery, but it's also more than a needle biopsy. And so what we've been doing a little bit is, is trying to um, get to a point where we might need the tissue to make an active treatment decision. But we've also been trying to think of ways that we can use the little bits of tissue that we have available in um, more useful, uh, you know, make these tumors more available to people. So the other approach we've been taking is processing some of those tumors out to DNA, for example, one of the macromolecules in, in tumors. And once we get DNA out, we can actually amplify that DNA in such a way to make it uh, much more readily available. And that way, if a researcher contacts me and says, I have a gene of interest, I want to know if there's ever a mutation in Ewing's sarcoma, I'd like to look at 100 tumors, it's much easier for me to effectively go to the bank and say, give this person 100 you know, aliquots of DNA rather than give this patient 100 of these incredibly rare primary tumors to study. So we've been, we've been strategizing in a variety of ways, number one, to get more tumors, but also to, to do more with, with the little bits that we have right now. Like printing your own money at the bank. It's like printing <laughs> your own money at the bank, exactly, exactly. So does your hospital, um, the children's part, accept patients only through 21, or what's the age cutoff? And do you then partner with your adult colleagues to take care of the older patients? Yeah, so in general, we take patients up to 18, although in, in particular instances, we will go over that limit. And so pediatric sarcoma is one of those where we will take patients who are younger. We have a very, very good relationship with our adult oncology colleagues. And, and part of the issue is that our surgical colleagues take care of both the, the children and the adults. And so for them, it's completely seamless whether you know, they happen to see the, the patient at the adult hospital, at the adult cancer hospital, or if they see the patient at the pediatric hospital. We're working on systems to be able to enroll the adult patients on the children's trials. It's very complicated because, you know, there are reporting requirements that if you don't have the ability to access the data yourself at the children's hospital, you know, you, you sort of get in a little bit of trouble, so to speak, through COG if you don't have all the data that's required for, for a given patient. And that's been something that we've been working our way through slowly, slowly but surely. I think the, the Cancer Institute is very supportive of um, making sure children's oncology, oncology group trials are available to anybody who is eligible for those, but, but there's some mechanical pieces that need to be worked out. There's, a, of course, a lot of issues surrounding adult or adolescent and young adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we had Archie Blyer actually on episode six, mm -hmm. if listeners want to hear more about those issues. But uh, what about uh, talking, turning to the biology of Ewing sarcoma and some of the things that you've uncovered in the research laboratory? What, what was sort of your initial major challenge that you wanted to tackle? Yeah, so the, the thing we were most interested in doing was identifying all the genes that were being turned on and off by this master regulator viewing sarcoma called EWS-FLY. And 
you know, it took a long time to build the systems that we needed using, again, these microarray approaches and using RNA interference or RNAi to set up the systems. But once we had the system, it was surprisingly easy to figure out what genes were going up and down. And it was, I mean, for me, it was really a, one of those aha moments, you know, and they, and they really come very rarely, I think, for, for, for those of us in the lab. You know, it's, it's once in a blue moon you get an aha moment. But the big aha moment for me was the first time we got these what we call gene expression profiles, you know, these microarray data that, that showed us the complete list of genes going on and off. It was, you know, the, the most interesting data set I had ever seen. It was, you know, for us, it was the holy grail. I mean, we had been studying Ewing sarcoma. I had been studying Ewing sarcoma at that point, you know, probably for 10 years. And, you know, it used to take us, you know, a year or two to identify a single gene that went up and down using old technology. And then all of a sudden, one day, you know, we sent some samples off to, you know, a core facility and they came back and suddenly we had hundreds or thousands of genes to look at. Now, the problem was you have hundreds or thousands of genes to look at and the technology for looking at those genes has not kept up with the technology for identifying that many genes. And so we spent a lot of time um, picking our way through the list to try to figure out which genes in those lists were really important. And, and by really important, I mean really important for some aspect, some feature of the tumor, be it the growth of the tumor, the survival of the tumor, its resistance to chemotherapy, which is something we've gotten interested in lately, um, asking the question whether there are any um, what we call druggable targets in the list, you know, anything that we might take a drug off the shelf and give to Ewing sarcoma cells with the long-term view being that we'd like to be able to get drugs into patients that might be more effective. And so, you know, that, that working up that gene list has really been the major struggle um, over the past few years. I, I think we made a little bit of headway, and we've certainly identified genes that are interesting, that seem to be absolutely required for Ewing sarcoma, there might even be some druggable targets in there. But, you know, to this day, I will still open up the list of genes and just stare at it because there is so much information in there and we don't really have a great way to sift through it um, in, in high throughput to get to the important pieces. Stephen, thinking about druggable targets and therapies um, from a simplistic standpoint, could you comment on whether you think the EWS uh, Fly One fusion products would ever be a druggable target? Yeah, I think there's I think there's evidence that they may be, and there's right now I would argue three lines of evidence for that. The first one is um, work that was done by uh, a friend of mine, Kim Stegmeyer, who was also in Todd Golub's lab at the time. Uh, and what Kim had done was simply look for drugs or, or compounds, you know, chemicals that might turn EWS fly off. She didn't really care how it worked, just as long as it turned EWS fly off. In a high throughput off. setting or one at a time? In, in a high throughput setting. Okay. So using a, a, what we used to call the KimBot 2000, which was Kim Stegmeier as a robot <laughs> standing there with a pipette. But she did, she did literally thousands of compounds that way by hand before... She really had full access to, to robotics. Um, but what was shocking about it was she got, in her initial screen, she, she initially looked for drugs that were already either FDA approved or had a known uh, activity, known, known function. And she originally found a single drug out of that screen, and it was an old 
friend of ours as oncologists. It was cytarabine or ARAC. And what was shocking about that was that if you give ARAC to Ewing sarcoma cells, you can actually watch the EWSY protein go away. We have no idea how it works. We have no idea why that should be. We have some ideas, but you know, we don't really know a mechanism for that. But honestly, we don't care. It doesn't really matter as long as it does what we think it ought to do. So the beauty of that approach was it very rapidly led to a clinical trial of ARAC in relapse in patients with relapse Ewing sarcoma. Now, the clinical trial was a complete flop, and the issue was is that the drug really was too toxic to give to patients who had already been very heavily pretreated with multiple uh, rounds in eight, uh, of chemotherapy and many different agents. And so it wasn't really... Uh, One of the problems with phase one design as we do now, that yes. hitting those patients with, uh, that are already in custody. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. So it was sort of a non-experiment, but it suggested at least that there are approaches that we haven't even thought about that might turn off EWSY. So that, did did EWSY1 get turned off in those patients that, with that looked at? We, we couldn't look because, you, again, ethically, you can't go back and re-biopsy those right. patients at the time. Although I, I would argue at some point we might be able to come up with an interesting trial design where we decide to continue with the drug based on a potential response to that drug. But that's a, a somewhat different story right now. So that's, you know, piece... Uh, uh, Direction number one is suggest it's druggable. Um, number two is um, work that's been done by Jeff Turetsky primarily, where um, where Jeff has looked for, uh, effectively has looked for drugs that might disrupt different proteins from interacting. And, and specifically, he was looking for drugs that would stick to EWS fly and prevent its interaction with another protein called RHA. Um, I'm sort of simplifying the, the process, but, but effectively that's what the screen was. And he found a compound that actually did that, which was fairly impressive. And at least in, in tissue culture, and if I'm not mistaken, in mouse models, he could show that the function of EWS fly seems to be shut off in those systems, and that you can actually either kill tumor cells or cause them to stop growing or, or have some effect on their growth. So that's the second uh, uh, line of evidence that suggests it's targetable. The third line of evidence is, is some very, very preliminary work that's going on at our own cancer institute in Utah, where we have um, really a, a, a developmental therapeutics program that's, that has a very significant chemical biology, sort of medicinal chemistry twist to it. And we have a, a, a chemist who takes a look at the physical structure of a protein, you know, the shape of the protein, and can look for drugs that might stick to particular regions of that protein, you know, little, little areas of importance. And he has done that with something that's related to EWS slide, not EWS slide itself, but another protein that's somewhat similar, and has actually found drugs that seem to be able to stick in the appropriate clefts and can prevent EWS fly from, or at least prevent, I'm sorry, these other proteins from sticking to DNA. And the reason that that's important is most of us have been taught that that is a, that is a, a problem that's insurmountable, that you cannot develop drugs that will block DNA binding. And I, I think the issue is that we don't really understand the, the deep, dark secrets of biochemistry enough to understand how to go about doing that. 
but we're starting to get some hints and he's used some of this earliest and newest data to design uh, at least lead compounds that might eventually be turned into drugs. It's very, very early work, but it's, it's, it's an area of investigation that I think is very, very exciting. So in order to understand about how you might target EWS-Fly1, you have to know how it works, right, and what it's doing. Right. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our lab has spent a lot of time thinking about how EWS-Fly works, and, and EWS-Fly is a, it's an interesting protein. It's a fusion protein where two normal proteins have gotten ripped apart and put back together um, really as a chimera. So the front end of the molecule is made up by a piece of EWS, and the back end of the molecule is made up by a piece of, of the protein called fly. They come together and they make a completely new molecule that's not seen anywhere else in nature. So this is a, a complete beast of cancer. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, very um, strange and unusual uh, phenomenon. What's nice about that, though, is that if you can block the function of EWS fly, in theory, you shouldn't hit anything else in the body. Now, that's theory, and, and I'm simplifying again. The way EWS fly seems to work is that that fly piece likes to bind to DNA, so it lets the protein stick to DNA, and the EWS half interacts with the rest of the sort of biochemical transcriptional machinery to turn some genes on and some genes off. You know, we've spent some time trying to figure out how it turns genes on and off, and, and to be perfectly honest, we have a lot of ideas. A lot of the ideas are really still pretty early, and, and to be honest, I don't think we have a good handle yet on how it's working. We've been able to define regions of the protein that are absolutely critical for its function. So that's been an advance. So as we, you know, one of the hopes is that we can whittle the protein down to smaller and smaller pieces, and then once you have a, a small enough piece to work with, then you could really figure out what other proteins is it sticking to, where is it sticking in the DNA, and so on and so forth. So we, in addition, I should say, have spent some time trying to figure out where EWS fly sticks to DNA. What genes is it sitting near? What genes is it turning on? And what genes is it turning off? And one of the surprising outcomes of that work is that we identified a completely unexpected EWS fly binding site in the human genome. And that is these, um, what are called microsatellite repeats. And these repeats are just made up of um, certain bases that just repeat over and over and over. And in the case of EWS fly, it's a sequence um, GGAA. And so the GGAA motif uh, repeats over and over and over 25 or 30 times in a row. And it turns out that that's what EWS fly likes to bind to. It likes to bind to other places as well, but, but that's one of the critical places EWS fly likes to bind. The reason that was actually very shocking to us when we first um, found this sort of popping up out of our data is that most of us thought that microsatellites were just junk DNA and had no function in normal cells. Now, again, that's, you know, a simplification, obviously, but in this case, this was really one of the first examples of microsatellites having a direct role in development of human cancer. Now, the beauty of that finding at some level is that microsatellites differ from person to person. You know, they might be you might have a microsatellite that has 30 repeats. I might have a microsatellite that has 25 repeats. The next person might have a microsatellite that's only 20 repeats. And at least our early data in the lab would suggest that microsatellites of different sizes 
allow EWS Fly to function differently. So it might bind more tightly or it might turn genes on to higher levels in some people and it might not even turn genes on at all in other people. And this is one of the areas that we're pretty actively investigating. So this, this might point. be a reason one person gets Ewing sarcoma and another one doesn't? That's exactly right. So we've been thinking a lot about this question about tumor susceptibility. And one of the features of Ewing sarcoma that nobody has really explained adequately in terms of mechanism is the idea that Ewing's is about 10 times more prevalent in European populations than in African populations. It holds true whether, uh, you know, sort of regardless of socioeconomic class, regardless of whether somebody migrates from Africa to the United States or is in Europe and so on and so forth. So this seems to be a fundamental, you know, presumably genetic feature of Ewing's sarcoma. And nobody's really understood this in, in any way, shape, or form. So one of the questions that we're asking in our laboratory at this point is whether differences in these microsatellite lengths might correlate with differences in, um, in, uh, in, um, uh, in, in race or, or uh, uh, origin. So whether, as an example, Europeans have larger or shorter microsatellites than Africans, for example whether patients who develop Ewing sarcoma have different microsatellites than, than siblings who don't, for example, and, and other, other things like that. So we've been really deeply interested in this question. It's a, really a matter right now of gathering the data, trying to look at the DNA, and you know, so, sort of see what's there and try to understand it. So you have to sort through that in the context of all the genes that are turned on or off by EWS fly one How many genes are there? Yeah, so the, the number of genes that are turned on and off literally at this point is about four or 5,000. Um, the ones with microsatellites is probably about 100 with microsatellites that are in, in an area that we think are probably close enough to genes to be important, although we don't really know for sure yet. So we're, we're starting, honestly, with, you know, three to five. We're going to see what the data looks like, see if that gives us um, ideas about the most efficient way to move forward with this type of a study. And is that only for genes that are turned on, or both on and off have microsatellites? Yeah, so it's it's absolutely clear that it's only genes that are turned on that have microsatellites. Genes that are turned off um, uh, very actively do not have microsatellites in front of them. So this seems to be one of the reasons that genes gets turned that genes get turned on by microsatellites. In fact, to a certain extent, we can almost predict which genes are going to be upregulated on the basis of what they're whether they have microsatellites sitting, uh, sitting close to them. So with respect to this uh, uh, tumor susceptibility in, in with, the, with the microsatellite story, is there any evidence, for example, that uh, there are uh, siblings or, 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 or uh, people out there who have the Ewing's fly or one of these other translocations but don't get Ewing sarcoma? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. We have no idea. And, and the issue is, is that Nobody's ever described uh, what we would call a precursor lesion for Ewing sarcoma. So in colon cancer, it's clear if you get certain, you know, adenomas, these certain growths in the colon, that that sets you up for colon cancer. And that's the whole basis of colon cancer screening, for example. In Ewing sarcoma, nobody's ever defined the equivalent of an adenoma that will eventually go on to develop Ewing sarcoma. So that, that's been a bit of a struggle. Um, the other point I'll make about that is that nobody has ever described a familial Ewing sarcoma syndrome, and Ewing sarcoma does not appear to be associated with any known cancer syndromes. It's not 
you know, seen as part of Leaf-Fraumini syndrome. It's not seen after patients who have retinoblastoma who have high risk to have other cancers and other sarcomas, osteosarcoma, retino, uh, um, rhabdomyosarcoma, but it doesn't seem to be linked with Ewing sarcoma. So what's, what's neat about being in a place like Utah is that Utah has something called the Utah Population Database, which is uh, which is physically a database. It was started by the Mormon pioneers who came to Utah who kept very, very rigid family records. So they knew who their parents were, who their grandparents were, who their great-grandparents were, and they kept these records of birth and death and marriages and divorces and everything else that would happen. And sometime, uh, you know, probably about 30 years ago, Mark Skolnick, who was at University of Utah, or came to University of Utah at the time, developed this into a genetic database. Now that database not only has family information, but is linked to things like medical records, birth records, death records, uh, cancer registry information, and other things. And so the university has been entrusted to manage this database, and it turns out to be a very, very rich resource of genetic information. And not, not genetic information in terms of looking at any single person and understanding you know, any of their secret genetic information, but it's a way to track down disease susceptibility in a very important way. So researchers in Utah have been very successful in identifying a number of, of high-risk cancer genes like uh, the colon cancer gene called APC, um, P16, um, NF1, which is involved in, in neurofibromatosis, and, and a few others as well. We've been working with those same geneticists to try to understand whether there's a Ewing sarcoma susceptibility that we might identify. I'll, I'll say the numbers are very small. So even looking across the whole state of Utah, across, you know, 40 years, you only gather, you know, 115 or something cases of Ewing sarcoma, which is not, you know, the thousands and thousands of cases of breast cancer that you can identify. But, What's interesting about that is there are some early hints that there might be some susceptibility or, or familial tendencies for Ewing sarcoma to occur. So it looks like we can see some families that have, have smatterings of Ewing sarcoma that pop up across cousins, not in nuclear families. So no siblings, for example, or, or parent-child pairs or anything like that, but, but mostly cousins that all seem to pop out in similar generations to each other. What that means genetically, we have some ideas, but, you know, I don't, I don't have really good information to pass on at this point. Certainly a lot more to study yet. Um, we're, we're almost out of yep. time. I have to get you to your next appointment, but uh, I'm just wondering if you could comment to finalize off here how you um, have your research funded and what, how do you keep things going and balance your whole work yeah. life. <laughs> I guess that's another hour topic, but yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, the research funding has been interesting. I will say we have been huge beneficiaries of um, families who have invested deeply in helping the research to move forward. So when I first arrived in Utah, um, some of my startup funding was actually provided by a family whose, uh, whose daughter had passed away from Ewing sarcoma. And over the first few years of my time in Utah, um, I was very fortunate to get funding from, um, uh, among other places, the Liddy Schreiber um, Sarcoma Foundation, um, Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, the Teresa Anna Perrine Sarcoma Fund, um, and a few others. And it, it's actually been um, very 
meaningful, not just for me, but actually for the folks in the lab, because some of these families have, have written us letters and cards. And for the trainees in the lab who don't interact with patients, it's really put a face to the disease in a, in a very different way than they might have experienced otherwise. So we have, you know, Christmas cards from, from kids and families and other things up in the wall. You know, they'll occasionally send us, you know, Valentine's Day cards and things like that. And it's, it's been a very nice connection. That initial funding allowed me then to, to move up to American Cancer Society and then, then up to NIH funding, which really is the, um, the gold standard for funding, you know, for funding a basic science research lab. And, you have to have NIH funding to survive, but these families and, and, and their friends and neighbors and everybody else have really given us the leg up to be able to survive long enough to get to the point where we can get stable long-term funding in the lab. I think we're all thankful for families who are willing to have tissue donated to banks or and, and to that, that go out and raise money exactly. to help support this kind of research. Absolutely, absolutely. Any final comments or questions? Um, no, I think this is a great example of how um, uh, clinicians and scientists, uh, in some cases all in one person, <laughs> uh, can interact with um, uh, the general public and with our families to raise awareness and to uh, uh, raise the money that's necessary for this for underfunded uh, disease processes like Ewing sarcoma. I think it's a very important uh, message to get out there. Well, thanks for being with us today. I wish we could have more time, but maybe we can get you on again sometime. Uh, if any of our listeners have questions for Dr. Lesnick or for anything about this episode, feel free to email us at twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast. And sign up for automatic notification on any of the websites where we exist, like the Solving Kids Cancer website, uh, if you use the RSS feed link and you'll get a posting of a new episode. Thanks again to Donald Ludwinski, our executive producer. Pat Buckley, our creative consultant, Scott Kennedy and John London, who are founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.